The last couple times that I have been with you, I've shared a couple of key ideas with you from Hebrews 11, and I want to take just a couple minutes this morning to rehearse those just so that we sort of build a foundation for what I want to share with you today. I have another key idea to share with you today. So the first time I was with you, I preached from Hebrews 11, 1 through 2, and the main thrust of the message that day was to say that faith is trusting in the faithfulness of God. Faith is actually about the one we're trusting in. Faith is full of feelings. I know in my life of faith, I have a lot of feelings for the Lord. I have a lot of feelings for others. I have a lot of feelings for the things that God has called me to do. But faith itself is not feeling. Feelings come and go. But faith is trusting in the faithfulness of God. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? The Lord himself is the root and the stability of our faith. And this is the main point that I was trying to drive home that Sunday. If we put our faith in God in a particular situation and find him to be faithful, then praise be to his name. But if in some situation our faith falters and we fail to trust in the faithfulness of God, God is still faithful. This is what Paul was getting at when he wrote this in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 11 to 13. He said the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. So again, I just want to drive this point home to you again. I constantly need the reminder in my own life. Faith is about God's faithfulness. That is the root. That is the hope of our faith is God himself. The second idea that I shared with you a few weeks ago when I was with you is that the practical way that we trust in the faithfulness of God from day to day is by clinging to his words and trusting in the God who spoke those words. God doesn't just want us to uh, nourish our faith in abstract ways. God doesn't want us to wake, wake in ourselves in the mornings and just try to conjure up faith. Rather, the way faith works is that we go to the well of God's word and we hover over the words of God in fellowship with the spirit of God and we're reminded about what God has said. In essence, in the Bible, the faithfulness of God is not a trait that, that is just an abstract trait. If you study this word faithfulness in the Bible with regard to God, you will see that it means that he keeps his words. When God speaks something, he is going to do that thing because he means what he says. And so all the examples of faith in in Hebrews chapter 11, I almost said Romans chapter 11 because that was my quiet time this morning, so my mind is kind of in Romans 11. But all of the examples of faith here in Hebrews chapter 11, if you study them carefully, you'll see that these people kept going back and going back and going back to the speech that God gave to them. And they nourished their faith by trusting that God would accomplish the word that he had spoken. This is why I was saying to you last time that food, uh, faith needs food. And the word of God is the food of faith. The way that faith works is that we listen to the words of God and we trust in the God who spoke those words. That's how it functions from day to day. And so with that as a foundation, I want to share with you another idea this week. Namely, I would put it this way. There's different ways you could state it. But I would put it this way, that the key to true success in life is learning to live by faith in Christ and then leaving the results to him. The results are his business. Our business, our joy, our pleasure is to fix our eyes on Christ, to listen to him, learn from him, and follow in his ways. That's it. 
This world teaches us that success has to do with achieving goals, right? It has to do with setting a goal for ourselves or having a goal set for us in relationships, education, sports, finances, career, whatever the case may be. And then success is achieving or exceeding that goal. In the world's way of thinking, this is what it means to succeed. And I think as believers, we can often find ourselves thinking this way as well, that the key to true success in life is is bearing the right fruit in Christ, the, the fruit that we think we ought to bear, or the fruit that other people think that we ought to bear. But the truth of the matter is that the key to true success in life is putting our faith in him and then leaving the results to him. And the results are not the same from one believer to another, from one church to another, from one ministry to another, from one family to another. I think we have to manage our expectations in the Lord and know that our main expectations are going to be fulfilled, namely that one day we're going to get face to face and we're going to be united with all the people who make up his body and there together forever we will worship him in joy that's going to happen for sure but a lot of things in this life are, are, are quite unsure and i think what the lord wants us to do is put our faith in him and leave the results to him sometimes when people are walking by faith from the outside they may they might appear to be failures but if they're truly walking by faith, the Lord has a better word for them. The, word has a, the, the Lord has a word of commendation for them. And not because they are in themselves praiseworthy, but because they themselves have been seeking him and doing his will, no matter the cost, no matter the consequence, no matter the outcome of faith. So again, I say to you that the key to true success in life is learning to live by faith in Christ and then leaving the results to him. The results are God's business. To this point in chapter 11 up to verse 31, the author has drawn his reader's attention to creation and the way that faith functions with creation. He's drawn our attention to Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, and Rahab. And although he could have continued and could have mentioned many more things, he was dealing uh, with certain constraints. And so in verse 32, he writes this. Now what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. I'm not sure why the author mentions these particular people at this point of, of this chapter, and I'm not sure that it really matters. Rather, I think that what really matters is that he's trying to say that he could go on and on and draw our attention to many people who trusted in God's faithfulness by clinging to his words. His chapter, in chapter 11 is, is relatively long in the, in the context of Hebrews as a letter, but it's actually pretty short, right, as a piece of writing. If you were just to look at chapter 11, he could have written books about all the people who lived by faith, who, who received the word of God and clung to the word of God and found out that God is faithful. He would want to tell us that by in this way that they received commandments from the Lord and, 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 and eventually received their commendation from the Lord. Not condemnation, but commendation from the Lord. Again, not that they were great in themselves, but that they trusted in his words and that they were doing his will. But rather than do that, he just decided to, to, to pause his chapter and summarize for us in very broad terms something that he really wants us to know. 
as we carefully consider the lives of the people that the author begins to describe in verse 33 and then goes on for a few verses, we discover something very strange and very glorious. Strange to us, but actually glorious. Namely, that the outcome of their faith on this earth is very different. In fact, sometimes it's radically different. Same God, same words, same desire to obey, sometimes radically different outcomes. Some of these people who truly lived by faith won great battles and great victories to the glory of God. But other people who were truly living by faith lost battles. They were killed by the edge of the sword. They suffered many great things by faith to the glory of God. They were not failures. They were not living fleshly lives. They were seeking the Lord and listening to the Lord and following in his ways. For some, he had one kind of fruit to bear. For others, he had a different kind of fruit to bear. The outcome of their faith was not the primary thing, though. The primary thing was that the root was just the same. They were seeking the Lord. They were living on the basis of his word. And each of them, at the end, discovered that God is absolutely and utterly faithful. So if you'll look at verses 33 to 35, you'll see that on the one hand, certain people of faith trusted in the Lord and they conquered kingdoms. By faith, they established and enforced God's system of justice in lands that they had conquered. And that was not such an easy thing to do. It's one thing to militarily dominate another country. It's a very different thing to establish your way of life in that country. And what the author is trying to tell us here is that some in the Old Testament, by faith, did just that. By faith, some obtained certain promises that God made to them along the way and relished in the victories that God had given to them. By faith, they shut the mouths of lions, not by their own prowess or their own strength, but by the power of God. By faith, they surrendered themselves to the fires of persecution and actually overcame those fires with miraculous power and lived to the glory of God. By faith, some of them escaped the edge of the sword when at times they were so vastly outnumbered by their enemies that they had no earthly hope. By faith, some of them were made strong when every single bone in their body felt so weak that they felt like they could not endure another day. By faith, they became mighty in war. By faith, they put foreign armies to flight, not by their strength or strategies, but by the power and the presence of God. All of these people looked to the Lord. They received instruction from the Lord. They trusted in the Lord, and they found out that God did exactly what he told them he was going to do. They found out that God is faithful. But David wrote this, Psalm 20, verse 7. He said, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. He was a king, right? And if you read the Old Testament, you can see plainly that he had horses, lots of them. He had chariots, lots of them. He had swords, lots of them. He had all of the weapons of war, lots of them. He didn't become powerful by nothing. He had the weapons of war. But David understood very clearly that his, the acquisition of the weapons of war was not what gave him victory. What gave him victory was the Lord himself. It was the Lord himself that called David when he was just a shepherd boy out in that field. It was the Lord himself who raised David up to take on bears and lions out in those fields, right? He was in God's training ground. 
It was the Lord himself who raised David up to defeat Goliath in the, in the sight of so many, which was a key part of his rise in the nation of Israel. It was the Lord himself who allowed him to endure those seven or ten years when Saul was pursuing him and trying to kill him and opposing him. It was the Lord who put the accoutrements of war in David's hands and taught him how to use them so that they could defeat the enemies that had defiled the land of God, the promised land. God was the one who did this. The external fruits of David's life were pretty impressive, but David said, this isn't about me. And it's not about all the weapons I've acquired. This is about the Lord. David got this. He conquered by faith, not by his flesh, not by strategies and structures and all these things. He conquered by faith. With God, he wrote, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our enemies. Beloved, David knew this deep in his heart. This was not just a theological principle for him. He won probably more victories than any other king in the history of Israel. And yet, deep in his heart, he knew that it was the Lord. And I think the author wants to drive this point home for us, that everybody who conquered by faith, that's listed here in Hebrews 11, they all conquered by faith. Not by their flesh, but by trusting in the Lord their God. The author mentioned something else that I want to Uh, give today as an example as well. He says that by faith, some of their women received back uh, their dead by resurrection, even before Jesus Christ had come into the world and lived and died and was raised from death. For one example, there was a widow who had had a child by a way of a miracle. This is in 2 Kings chapter 4. When that child had grown up, he was out in the field working one day and he became sickly and nobody really knew what was going on with him and so they sent him home and sadly, not long after he got home, that child died. And since she was a widow and this was her only son, this was a very tragic thing for her. She was very sad. She began to seek the Lord and then after praying, she did the only thing that she could think to do. Namely, she called to the prophet Elijah and asked if he would come and pray over the child. He prayed about that and he did. He went to her home. And when he arrived, he spent some time with the Lord, and then he prayed for this child in a very unusual way. The the text is very graphic here. It says that he laid his body upon the child's body, his eyes upon the child's eyes, his lips upon the child's lips, his hands upon the child's hands. And when he had finished praying, he arose and walked about the house, and then he did the same exact thing for a second time. He again laid his body upon the child's body and he began to pray for him. And the second time, now as he was praying, his his body began to become warm and suddenly out of nowhere, the child sneezed not once or twice or three times, but seven times. Those had to have been the most glorious sneezes in the history of the world, huh? Everybody in that household knew that this child had died. They were not unclear about what had happened. He wasn't just sickly. He hadn't just passed out. He wasn't in a coma. He had died and they knew it. And so those sneezes that that demonstrated life must have been absolutely glorious to them. This child came back by the power of God. Elijah did not create this technique on his own. This wasn't something he picked up at a prayer seminar somewhere or talking with his fellow prophets. Elijah decided to pray for this child in this, in this particular way, in a very particular way. 
the Bible tells us in 2 Kings chapter 4 that Elijah did not just receive this invitation and instantly go to be with his family and pray for this child. Rather, he sought the Lord and he prayed. Elijah first prayed and then he obeyed. That was the order of, of his life here, of his activities here. And that's a principle we could live by. He first prayed and then he obeyed. He first sought the will of God and then he did the, wor- the will of God. He first sought to hear a word from the Lord, and then he did the word of the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. This order is of extreme importance. It was God who instructed Elijah to lay his body on this child and pray for him so that the child would come back from death. And after all these centuries, it's still a glorious thing that this child was raised from death to life. But I think that in this story, the Lord was up to even greater things. I think that this story is one of the most graphic prophecies in the Old Testament of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his people. Because one day the Lord himself would come to this earth and he would live a righteous life and die a very real death. He would be buried in a grave and then on the third day he would come out of that grave to new life again, right? But unlike this child's resurrection, he didn't just go from death to life. Jesus destroyed death on his way back to life. This is why we say Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Others were raised from the dead by the power of God. Jesus was the one who broke the power of death. And then he raised to the, ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns right now forevermore and where one day he will bring his people back into his presence. And before that day, there will be a great resurrection where all the people of God are raised. And like Elijah, in some way, shape, or form, Jesus will place his body on our bodies. He'll place his eyes on our eyes, his lips on our lips, his hands on our hands, his mind and heart on our minds and hearts, essentially his soul on our souls, and he will become our resurrection. The Lord Jesus does not just give resurrection to his people, he is the resurrection of his people. This graphic idea of a man placing his body on a child who raises from the dead is a way of helping us understand how resurrection is going to work for us. Jesus will wrap himself around his people and bring us back to life. He is not just one who gives us life. He is our life. Elijah may not have been aware of the greater things God was doing in him and through him as he prayed for that child that day. But one way or the other, he did by faith what God gave him to do, even if it was an unusual command, even if it might have felt awkward in the moment. Elijah obeyed the words of the Lord, and in this way, the child came back to life. And what I'm trying to help us see is that this great fruit of resurrection that came about in the life of one believer came about because he was living by faith. It's not really about the results. That's a thing to be rejoiced in to some extent. But the real thing to see here is the root of what happened. The root of what happened is a people who were seeking God and doing the will of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. All of the great victories mentioned in verses 33 to 35 came to pass by faith, not by wisdom or might or prowess, but by faith. And then these things came to pass and, and, and these things, when they come to pass for people like you and me, they come about in the same exact way as we put our hope in God, not as we try to accomplish particular results. Now, things did not always go this way for everybody who lived by faith. And so now if you look at verse 35, 
right in the middle of verse 35, the author makes a very important transition to tell us about people who triumphed by faith to people who experienced tragedies by faith. Very different outcome, but same root, faith. In the ESV, this transition is marked by the word some, but in the Greek text, the words are slightly stronger and should probably be translated, but others. So the the text would read something like this. So on the one hand, some people conquered by faith to the glory of God, but others. And I think the author wants us to hear this transition this way with this kind of force. But others actually suffered by faith to the glory of Christ. These people also received and believed in the promises of God, and they obeyed the promises of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. But instead of winning great victories, sometimes they were tortured and sometimes they had to endure death itself. For example, at one point of his life, the prophet Jeremiah was bound and beaten by the religious and political powers of his day. People who claimed to know the Lord, people who claimed to love the Lord, people who claimed to be walking with the Lord, people who claimed to know the will of the Lord, actually bound and beat this brother and caused him to suffer greatly. And yet he refused to recant what the Lord had him to say, even though that would have brought him instant comfort because he was determined to do the will of God, no matter the cost or the consequence. His desire was not for the pleasures of this world, but for the treasures of the glory of God. Jeremiah was not lacking in faith because he was tortured. He was not living in the flesh because he was beaten and abused. He was not a failure because he ended up in prison and died a death, still not seeing the repentance of his, his precious people that he had hoped for all of his life. He was living by faith in the faithfulness of God. And that's what actually enabled him to endure such tough things. God's will is not for every believer to experience triumphs in this age. For some of us, we have to suffer greatly along with Christ for the glory of Christ in order to fulfill the purposes of Christ. And the fullness of those purposes are his business. The fullness of those purposes are sometimes hard for us to understand. But we don't really need to understand. What we need to know is this. Put your eyes on Christ. Listen to his words. Trust his words. Follow in his way by the power of the Holy Spirit. Leave the results to him. Your joy will be very high in the age to come. Very high. Like Jeremiah, others lived by faith and endured mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. By faith, some of them had rocks and stones thrown at them to the point of death. By faith, some of them were actually sawn in two, which is such a horrible graphic way to die, but it surely happened. By faith, some of them did not escape from the edge of the sword. Rather, they were killed by the edge of the sword. Still others were not killed by the saw or the sword. But by faith, they were forced to live in very difficult circumstances, things that were not easy to endure. By faith, some of them dressed in the skins of animals because they had no other earthly choice. They had been stripped of their earthly goods. They had been stripped of normal jobs and normal places to live. They had to do what they had to do just to keep themselves warm from the cold. And so on with sheepskin and things like that as it had to be the case for them. This was not easy. It might sound romantic to us that people would endure such things for the glory of God. But 
Trust me, for them, that was not easy. By faith, many of them lived without money or earthly possessions. Some of them were destitute and afflicted and mistreated by the powers and peoples of this world. By faith, they had no homes of their own, but were forced to wander about in deserts and mountains. By faith, they dwelt in caves and even holes in the ground, which if you look at the end of verse 38, that's a more literal translation of what's said there. They burrowed by faith into the earth like animals do because they had no other earthly choice. They were having to deal with things because they were trusting in the faithfulness of God. They were having to endure many difficulties because they had heard a word from the Lord, which was many and varied, but for each of them, they heard a specific word of the Lord. They were following in the will of God by the power of God, and this led them into suffering. They were not losers. They were not failures. In truth, they lived by faith, and they are commendable in God's sight. They trusted in the presence and the promises of God to the point where they lost everything and had nothing left but their joy in God. That was it. They were stripped down completely, except for what could not be taken away from them, right? Which was their joy in God. The world despised and rejected them, but the Lord to this day bears a better testimony about them, specifically that the world is not worthy of such as these. That's in verse 38. And I think that that's not to make much of them as people. That's the Lord's way of saying, look, they were following me. These were my people. You opposed them. You despised them. You rejected them. You mistreated them. They endured all kinds of things, even praying for you while you were doing X, Y, and Z to them. They're my people. You're not even worthy to be in their presence because my presence is enshrouding them. They are my people. The Lord sees things very differently, beloved, is what I'm trying to help us understand today. We sometimes, especially as American believers, we get transfixed with results, but the Lord is transfixed with the root of our faith. And the root of our faith is that we seek the Lord. We receive the word of the Lord. We seek to obey his word by the power of his Holy Spirit. And then the results are different for us. Sometimes even in one life, the results are different from one season to another. Isn't that true? There's been times in my life where I bore a lot of external visible fruit. And other times of my life, like right now, where Almost all the fruit Kim and I are bearing as believers is completely invisible to others. And guess what? I don't care. It means nothing to me. When people can see the fruit, it means nothing to me. When people can't see the fruit, what I care about is that I'm in Christ. I know him. I'm walking with him. He's been patient with me. He's guided me. He's empowered me. The fruit will come. So we put our eyes on the roots and not on the fruit. So often... When we feel disappointed in the Lord and in his ways, it's because we're living with false expectations of what the outcome of our faith should be. It's because we tend to believe, even if we would decry the prosperity gospel, I think that there's a part of us that tends to believe that if we're walking with the Lord, all will be well with us. We won't suffer. We'll actually avoid suffering. There's a part of us at least that believes that if we're walking with the Lord, our finances are going to be in the right place and our house and home is going to be in the right place. And, and basically everything might not go perfectly for us, but it, essentially it's going to go well. And I just think we need to die to this. I'm not saying that the Lord doesn't want to bless his people and care for his people. What I'm saying is his care is probably different categorically than the way we think. And the Lord 
does bless his people in the midst of suffering. In fact, I told the pastor of the church that we belong to now just a couple weeks ago that my greatest growth spurts in this life have been in the seasons of suffering. They've been in the seasons where, where what is real, you know, everything that's not real is stripped away and what's real is there. And what's most real in my life is the presence of the Lord our God and the stability of the Lord our God. So even in the midst of suffering, yes, maybe the Lord has removed from us certain comforts of this world, but he's greatly increased the things that are more important anyway. So as we live by faith, we need to learn to put our eyes on the right prize. We put our eyes on the Lord. When it comes to the life of the church, I, I do think that especially in America, we tend to think that if we're walking with the Lord in the right way, that all the relative numbers of the church will tend to increase. The numbers will go up, the money will go up, the missions will go up, evangelism will go up. Everything will essentially go well for us. And if churches struggle and suffer, we tend to think something's wrong there. Maybe something is wrong there, but maybe nothing's wrong there. Maybe what's happening is you have a group of people gathered who truly love Jesus and want to do his will. And, and the, his will for the outcome of their faith isn't quite the same as the church down the street or in a different town or in a different country. We have to get our eyes off the results is what I'm saying. I had a meeting with my pastor this week. In fact, we just met over coffee and talked about a lot of things. But this is one thing we talked about, that in the evangelical world, we're just almost plagued with the comparison game between churches. We just need to die to this, beloved. What we ought to do is be encouraging one another as individual believers and encouraging each other from church to church to go to the root of faith. Are you seeking the Lord? Are you seeking his word? Are you seeking to do his will by the power of the Holy Spirit? Are, we, are you rejoicing in him? And if that's there, then amen. Let's encourage each other, not discourage each other. Forget the comparison game. It's not a godly game. We need to put our eyes upon, again, is the root of faith and then leave the fruit of faith to the Lord. Whether we're talking about our personal lives, our family lives, our lives as a church, I just think we need to do a little expectation management and leave the results to God. The key to true success in life is learning to live by faith in Christ and then leaving the results to him. That's where success is at. If you have done the will of God, your comparative results, so to speak, are just not important. I wouldn't say they're not relevant because the fruit we bear matters. The fruit we bear in the Lord is eternal fruit. The fruit David bore in huge things matters. I would not want to diminish that. But the fruit that the people who had to live in holes in the ground bore, that fruit matters too. So we put our eyes on the Lord and we leave the results to him. I believe that is the key to true success in life. Back in 2001, I had the privilege of meeting Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. I was at a gathering of pastors, but the meeting that was there with him, there's probably only 15 or 16 of us in the room. And so we got several hours with him in that kind of context. And then afterwards, I even got to talk to him for a while and got to pray with him. At that time, I thought it was a privilege, but later I talked to a good friend, Cleon, actually, Cleon Engel up at Bethlehem Baptist, who had worked for Campus Crusade for years, 30-some-odd years, and said, well, I never even got to meet Bill Bright. So he felt a little uh, jealous that I had got to spend some personal time with him. So I just, I just was really grateful for the time that I spent with him. But it's not just because he's a, a well-known Christian, it's because of what he said. That's what, that's what has really stayed with me. He really made an impact on my life that day. As he was talking to us as a group of pastors, 
He shared with us that at that time, Campus Crusade had 250,000 full-time workers, all of whom had raised their own support by faith. And that in itself is breathtaking to me. But then he shared that they had somewhere around 500,000 regular volunteers who gave 10 or more hours per week to the ministry. And so if you add all that up, you have 750,000 people laboring together under the banner of one ministry to impact college campuses in our country and around the world. By earthly standards, you could say that Bill Bright was tremendously successful. But after sharing with us the details of his ministry, he said to us with all the earnestness in his heart, he said that if you think I am responsible for the great growth and fruitfulness of Campus Crusade, you're crazy. Those were his words. He said that, you're crazy. And he said it with such earnestness that I knew he meant what he said. He said, I am nothing more than a flea upon a tick. I am an instrument in the hands of God. God has done this. He told us about a time when he and Vonette Bright gathered together as a young couple and surrendered themselves fully to the lordship of Jesus. And he said that day by day, their life was marked by this. They would hover over the word together, surrender themselves to the the will and words of God together, and then follow the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. And everything else has just come about in God's time and in God's way. He pressed on us hard to focus on the root of what had happened in Campus Crusade and not on the fruit. That just stuck with me so much because here's a guy that by earthly standards could have easily stood before us and boasted and, you know, who could have said much of anything about it, right? But instead of boasting in himself, he boasted in the Lord. He pointed to the Lord. And then he urged all of us to not compare our results to Campus Crusade or any other ministries that were around in our area. He said, here's the deal. Success is doing the will of God in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to him. Those are Bill Bright's words. He's famous for saying those words. It was something, though, for me to hear him say it personally because I could see the earnestness in his eyes. He knew this way of life. This was not a theoretical thing for him. And I just loved watching a guy over such a massive ministry encouraging pastors over all kinds of different sizes of ministry saying, look, we're all the same. Seek the Lord, do his will, and be happy. Be happy in God. Be happy in the will of God. And that's a way of life I want to commend to you today. Be happy in the will of God and leave the results to him. Hudson Taylor, like Bill Bright, founded a ministry that even in his lifetime had become very large. And in the 130 years or so since he has died, it's continued to mushroom. It's now called Operation Mobilization. I believe it was called China Inland Mission in his lifetime. Um, But Hudson's ministry, as I said, even in his lifetime was very large and he became quite renowned. One day, a pastor of a church of about 100 people who knew Hudson from earlier in their lives together came and met with him while he was in England and he admitted to Hudson that he was somewhat depressed and he was a little bit jealous of Hudson and the, and the fruit that had come out of his ministry. The pastor told him that he loved Jesus, that he genuinely sought him by prayer every day, that he read the word of God every day, that he sought to obey the will of God day by day. He sought to equip the church. He sought to be on mission in their city and around the world, and yet, try as he might, he felt like the church just wasn't going where he thought it should go or bearing the kind of fruit that he thought it should bear. And so he was asking his friend and mentor now um, his opinion on this matter. Led by the Spirit, as Hudson Taylor was, he said, Brother, what does it matter if the master sends one servant to fetch $100 and another servant to fetch a $1 million? They are both 
serving the same master. (laughs) In other words, he was telling this brother to focus on the root of faith and not on the fruit of faith. Who knows what God was up to? I don't know where this pastor was from. I don't know what his city was, but it was a real city and a real place. And I'm sure there's still a church in that city, in that place now. Who knows how the Lord was using that pastor and that church to sow seeds there that wouldn't be born for until other generations. Who knows what God was up to? God knows. And I think what Hudson was trying to say to this man is, brother, be content in the Lord. Don't look at the fruit. Look at the roots. And I say to you again, Jesus himself is the root of our faith. The faithfulness of God is the root of our faith. And so I think if Bill Bright and Hudson Taylor were here with us this morning, they might want to change the way that I'm saying this. I don't know. But they would certainly agree with the heart that the key to true success in life is learning to live by faith in Christ. That's where the gold is at. And then we leave the results to the Lord. The author concludes the chapter, and I'll be very quick with this, in verses 39 to 40. He says, All those and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from them, from us, they should not be made perfect. Every single person who was mentioned or inferred in chapter 11, even those who conquered for the glory of God by faith, not even they received all the promises that God had made to them. Some of them were fulfilled in their lifetime. Most of them were not fulfilled in their lifetime. Even this day, these precious God-exalting souls mentioned in this chapter are waiting for the final fulfillment of the promises of God. When God gathers for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation in this earth and across time and unifies us into one people so that he will be our God and we will be his people together. They're still waiting. It still has not been fulfilled. And yet, and yet, their great joy is in the Lord. They did the will of the Lord. They finished their race. Remember the beginning of chapter 12? Now they form a cloud of witnesses. And I think that when they are there as a cloud of witnesses, functioning as a cloud of witnesses. They're not yelling down to us saying, you can do it, press on. They're saying, God will do it, press on. God is faithful, press on. God will fulfill his promises, press on. God will uh, bring about everything he said will come about in his time and in his way. So hope in him and press on. This is their encouragement to us. Their encouragement to us is about God and not about us. And so I say to you once more, the key to true success in our lives is learning to live by faith in Christ and leaving the results to him. Father, we thank you again for your faithfulness. We thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so you always have been and you always will be faithful. And I pray that you would help each of us now that we've heard this word. I pray that you would help each of us to apply it to our lives in the way that would be pleasing to you. Each of us has different struggles with the life of faith, but Lord, you know each of us intimately. You even know the hairs on our heads, so you know how to apply your word to each of us and and to different churches as well that will hear this message. And so I thank you, Father, for what you have done this morning. I thank you for what you will do in the coming days. I pray that through it all, you would exalt your faithfulness and teach us to be content in you. Thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. Amen.